You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Hey, everyone. I'm Jackie Lewis, and I am the host of Love Period, a podcast produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. This is our fourth season, and in this one, we're thinking about how to reframe and reclaim Christian as a religion of love, as the religion of Rabbi Jesus. What about if we took it back to Jesus and took it back to love? What if we take it back to scripture that elucidates this beautiful movement of love and justice? Join us this season for beautiful conversations with folks across the spectrum to talk about what's love got to do with scripture and what scripture got to do with love. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. He's the senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago and the author of a new book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. Welcome, Otis. How you doing? I'm doing well. It's great to talk with you. I can't complain. Doing the best I can with what I have. One of us has a son that graduated from Morehouse. Yes, it's, it's, it's not me. <laughs> let, let, let's just talk for a minute about, about a father's love, uh, seeing his boy grow into a man who becomes his colleague in the alumna world. You know, it was one of the most extraordinary experiences. For, for those who are listening who may not be familiar, Uh, My son graduated from Morehouse College. I'm a graduate of Morehouse College, and my father is is a graduate of Morehouse College. And so it's three generations graduating from Morehouse. Morehouse is the only all-male African-American institution in the country, maybe the world. I'm not not quite sure if the world. I don't know if there's anything in the Caribbean or in Africa that is is an all-male uh, space of learning uh, higher, for higher education. But it was an absolutely sublime experience to witness the graduation of my son. And, and for those who are not familiar with HBCUs, especially Morehouse, there are all of these rites of passage rituals we have, and especially Morehouse is big on the rituals. You know, Spelman is big, but but Morehouse takes it to a completely different level. So let me paint the picture uh, so that people can get a sense of why this was so impactful beyond the fact of, oh, your son graduated. When every student arrives on Morehouse's campus, along with their parents, they take you into the chapel and they have this ritual where the uh, the faculty and the staff and the dean of the chapel, they're, they're on the, the dais, and they ask all of the young men to stand. And they begin to speak to them to say that you are about to take these steps into adulthood. And there are expectations of you, not of your parents, but of you, that we're going to be expecting things from you, not from your mom, not from your dad. We're going to be expecting things from you. And they do this piece where they have all the parents stand. And we have to then talk to our, 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 our son and say, we release you at this point. 
that you are stepping into adulthood. And so we're talking to them and then they turn and turn talk to us. Wow. Mom, dad, I am ready. I am ready to step into this new space. Uh, I'm ready to, uh, to, to soar. You know, it's just beautiful. It's just really beautiful. But then they do this thing when they come to school where they march all of the students out and alumni line up on the left and the right side. And you have all of these different chants that are going on about Morehouse as the young men are, you know, holding each other's shoulders and they march out into the street and line up. And then the dean says, I present to you the class of 2023 that will make change in this world. It's, 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 it's powerful. But I have a little video of my father as he's standing lined up with the alumni. And you can see he just starts crying. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, 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 it's powerful. I was just like imagining that he's thinking about the, the moment when he was at Morehouse and all of that. So that's when you get to the school. <laughs> and then when the preparation for graduation, it's, it's several days of, of different activities and celebration before you get to the graduation. It's all these rites of passage programs. And the one that is that kicks it off is the passing of the light. The motto of Morehouse is ect facta ex lux, uh, let there be light uh, in, in, in Latin. And so my father, because he's, he's an elder alum, he's, he's a uh, trustee emeritus, he's on the, on the dais with all these other alumni that are elders. Uh, but not all of them have, you know, grandsons who are about to graduate. So he gives the charge of the passing of the light. And every Morehouse graduate has an actual candle. And all of the alumni are to light the students' candles that were passing the light. And so my father and myself got a chance to light Elijah's candle. And it was just, it was beautiful. Then we come to the graduation. <laughs> And before we even get to the graduation, they, they decided that they were going to record Elijah throughout that weekend because it's three generations graduating. So they wanted to make sure they recorded him on video. And they had an opportunity to record all three of us together. Um, and when I say, Jackie, you know, I've, I've heard a variety of things my, my father has shared and stories and whatnot. He shared something that literally just broke us all up. So they ask each of us, it's, it's myself, it's Elijah, it's my father. We're, we're, we're just sitting next to each other. They have a camera and they ask us all the same question. What did Morehouse do for you? If you had not gone to Morehouse, what would your life be like? It was something along those lines. So Elijah answers and I answer. Then my father answers and my father has this wonderful, slow, deep, resonant voice. Um, and he says, quietly thinks, and then quietly he says, in 1952, I arrived on Morehouse's campus, and Dr. Benjamin Elijah Mays said to me, welcome, Mr. Moss. 
He paused. He said, many of you may not think that that was important, but all my life I had been called everything but Mr. Oh, my God. Now I was being called Mr. Moss by Dr. Benjamin Elijah Mays. It changed my life. We were done. So I'm done. Oh, we, we were. We were just. It's like oh, the 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 radicality of being called Mister from a person who grew up as a rural sharecropper, and he lands on the campus of Morehouse College. So now we get to the graduation, and the graduation is set up at Morehouse, where you first have a processional of African drummers for the students to even arrive to their seats. And the torch is carried. Uh, they bring a torch. And the torch this year was carried by Olympic champion Edwin Moses, who was a graduate of Morehouse College. And he, yeah. was, he was celebrating his, what is I think it's his 40th or something reunion or something of that nature. Uh, 50th, or, I'm not sure what it was. But, you know, he lights the torch, places it on the dais. And, and then, of course, they get to the point where they uh, bring the students to receive their degrees. They call my son's name. Of course, we hear it. And of course, I'm, I'm shouting. I got a great picture I'm going to send to you. Um, I have on Instagram, I have it. I captioned this because it's Elijah. He's just like joyous. And you can see in the background just hollering. I saw you. <laughs> I saw you. When he goes up the steps, the first person to greet him was his grandfather. And one of the uh, photographers captured the experience of grandfather and grandson. And you can see the just depth of emotion in my father's eyes. And it was, I told the photographer, I said, if you didn't get any other picture, you, you got the essence <laughs> of what the experience of Morehouse College is and for our family in that one embrace in that picture. And what was so powerful you heard everyone on the dais, because they all know my father. They, they knew that um, his grandson was graduating. You heard this collective, <gasps> you know, when, when they hugged. It was really powerful. Oh, man. And there's oh. nothing, 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 nothing that compares. I get it now. When you see your child do well, it is extraordinary. I came to Morehouse. I was I was an athlete and all that kind of stuff, but but I went to Morehouse on probation. You know, and I was able to graduate, you know, with honors. I did very well at Morehouse. It changed my life and all of that. My son graduates Phi Beta Kappa. Come on through. Come <laughs> through, Eli. <laughs> cum laude. I mean, oh, no. did the doggone thing. I mean, he just really did not. And it was just amazing that here, you know, his father and his grandfather, we got into the school on a wing and a prayer. And here he comes just elevating everything. And it's just, I don't know, it's sublime. It is a sacred sublime experience to witness that. I am grateful that on this day, I get to hear my friend talk about his baby boy this way. <laughs> it's amazing. I saw the picture of you in ecstasy, right? shouting. <laughs> I said, like, what is he saying? <laughs> I will I will send a caption now. Otis, the um, you know, I got to see you and your dad six weeks, two months ago. 
at our Freedom Rising conference in a Zoom together. And I haven't had a chance to process that with you watching you watch your dad. So I'm going to ask you now, you got to watch your dad on the dais this last week or so. You got to watch your dad in that Zoom. You watched your dad a lot in your life. What's it like watching your dad? It's, it is really a joy. I've been given uh, a gift, and my father is a father figure to many. And we've always been incredibly close. I have watched him since I was a child and been enamored by his quiet kindness, his gentleness, his strength, and his ability to communicate love. That's his thing. I mean, he believes that a man's responsibility is loving. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the way he communicates to his children. That's the way he communicates to my mother. You, he, he exudes the idea that, that the essence of manhood is tapping into this idea of, of loving and lovingness. Uh, and, and to witness him in so many different iterations is always a wonder. And then the other piece is that he taps into some things that we, we have either forgotten or we have closed the door to, and that is this element of, of mysticism, of encounter, with the spirit, he 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 believes in in the movement and the power of God, a God who cannot be contained, a God loose in the world, a God that 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 manifests God's self in a multiplicity of ways and is demonstrated through the life. Of, of Jesus Christ. It can be witnessed in, in history, it can be seen in moments that we think is just suffering, but we can find glimpses of light, holes in the darkness <laughs> that the light shines through. He, he believes that. He, he, he functions and never, he never ceases to, to amaze me. He'll be 89 this year, and we recently recorded him for a short film, just getting his stories, hearing him talk about the movement and experiences in the South, what it was like to work with Dr. King and Fred Shuttlesworth and Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, what it was like to be an organizer and serve with Martin Luther King Sr. at Ebenezer. You know, we've been collecting collecting those stories so that, you know, another generation another generation can 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 hear that. But it really is. He he is He's my hero. Um, he is my model in reference to to, to ministry and, and 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 in manhood. And it is always he's always been. Uh, years ago, when he retired from his church, I had to give remarks, and I said, "My father demonstrates what it means to be a gentleman, a gentle man. What that means that he the gentle and man together uh, operates." and the way he communicates in every aspect of his being. I love teasing your father about, I'm going to help him write that book. I'm, I don't know that I'm teasing. <laughs> We've been trying to get him to write the book for him. Write that book. <laughs> so we just gonna have to, we just got to record him. So that's what we do now. Yeah. That's, Otis, 
I hope it doesn't embarrass you when I say I think of you as that way, too. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. A gentle man. I mean, strong, uh, powerful, brilliant, well-versed in many disciplines, rigorous, but also gentle. Where does that come from? Is that your dad in you? Is it something you've also curated? I had good models. It was my, my father was, was one model. Uh, another person was uh, Hoover Thomas, who was the person who ran the junior deacon program at our church. And a former um, uh, police officer, but he was that working class brother who believed in deep commitment. He didn't, he didn't lead through yelling and being gruff, even though he was a big man. <laughs> but he led through relationship, being in relationship with people. And he loved to teach and he loved mentoring young men. He didn't have any uh, children. He didn't have children. He didn't have any sons. And, and we became his, his sons. We called him Uncle Hoover. Uh, he was a deacon. Everybody called him Uncle Hoover. I mean, he was the man. He would show up to your track meets, your basketball games. And uh, if anyone got into trouble, seriously, if they, with with the police, Uncle, you want, you called Uncle Hoover. <laughs> Uncle Hoover intervened for you. You know, his, his wife, who we called Aunt Clarice, she is now 93, 94, uh, who was from, I think, Clarksdale, Mississippi. She cooked for 30 people every Sunday. You went to her house. Now, she rarely ever ate, but she cooked for everybody else. Was one of the most amazing cooks. Everything from scratch. So she did these rolls from scratch. And her stuffing was from scratch. And she enjoyed having people in her home so that she could also, you know, get you straight. Uh, but also, you know, telling stories. And so the, this couple, this was this wonderful, loving couple that was a part of, was a part of our church. And they believed in mentoring young people. That was their calling because they came from a community from in the South. They wanted to recreate that kind of village community in Cleveland, Ohio. And they believed in that. Um, and so many of us, we are products, graduates of the the Hoover and Clarice Thomas <laughs> School of Life. <laughs> I love that. Love that. Um, yeah, it was. I mean, it was. Uh, there was uh, Deacon Finley that I remember growing up. Deacon Finley. I think Deacon Finley was from Alabama. Deacon Finley used to walk six miles every day. That's how he he'd work out. You know, that that was his thing. And I remember him in his 80s, and here he was, uh, again, a union person. <laughs> and this, in his very quiet, organizing way, but he believed in, in the dignity of labor. And he would share the stories with people. You know, this, this very dignified, smooth, smooth brother uh, always had a, I mean, just dressed to the nines, had his hair cut all the time, um, and just always looked so good in every aspect of how he did. Sam Tidmore, former 
football player at for the Browns. He was on the defense, played with Jim Brown. And he, Sam had all daughters. So Sam loved, he, he loved us. He loved the guys because he, he had all girls. <laughs> and so he, he always wanted a son to play football. I need some man energy. <laughs> That's funny. But, but Sam Tidmore, again, he goes to Ohio State, plays for Cleveland Browns. He was a linebacker. Uh, was a deacon in our church, but he was also a part of the entrepreneurial class. He, he owned um, uh, Burger Kings, uh, several Burger Kings. And then one time he, he was able to get a distributorship with, I think, Coca-Cola or something of that nature. But he was committed, deeply committed to raising money in reference to social justice work. So the anti-apartheid movement, Sam Tidmore was raising money. When Jesse Jackson first ran for, for president in 84, Sam Tidmore, along with Arnold Pinckney, who was Jesse Jackson's campaign manager, who's a part of our church in Cleveland. And they're going across the country telling these people who thought they, these bougie black folk thought they made it. I said, this is your responsibility to, to be a part of this movement. You can't just make it up the corporate ladder by yourself. And so th those are the men I was around. You know, these and all of them, it kind of, I never really, you know, nobody's ever asked me that. All of them were married and deeply committed to the relationship that they were in. They were committed to the church they were part of. They were migrants from the South who had this village mentality and they just really believed that the responsibility of of a man was to not in the traditional way like i'm to protect this that is like all i'm supposed to do is love and make the world better for for younger people that's what they they truly believed thank you for asking that because i've never really had thought about all of these elders who were around me who were you know they were older than my parents who had a huge impact on me. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avitt, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. There's so much, Otis, going on in the world that feels like darkness. And I'm an empath, I think you are too. Like my antenna, do not, I, I can't function sometimes when there's too much, too much.
two mini stories, one more shooting, one more stabbing, one more child on the porch shot in the head, one more body laid in the ground, you know, one more BS, bad stuff said in the media. I, I just wanted to crawl away. I was so tired. So your book is a call to learn how to dance in, in these turbulent times, right? Can you and I talk a bit about how you make meaning of these turbulent times? In other words, what in the hell is going on? You know, I said the other day in conversation at the MLK Library in D.C., white supremacy is a virus that continues to mutate. The, the original sin of, of our country. And what we're witnessing today is a mutation of the antebellum Confederate variety in a 21st century uh, shape. Say that one more time. That's so beautiful. Say it one more time. What we're witnessing today is a 21st century variety of the antebellum and Confederate uh, shape of the virus uh, mutated for uh, the 21st century. The language has, has changed a little bit. But the intent is, is the same. And in order to deal with a virus, you've got to be inoculated. You have to have a vaccine. And what's interesting is black people have always been bringing the vaccine to America. That every fundamental movement that we have been participating in has always been expanded by the vision that comes through black spirituality, whether you're talking about abolition, or you're talking about the labor movement, the anti-lynching movement, uh, the freedom movement, it blesses everybody. It, it doesn't bless one person. So we, when, when, when black people speak of freedom, the inoculation is not localized. It's expanded throughout the, uh, the democratic project. And when you hear Black Lives Matter, you're hearing someone raising the question about inoculation from the virus. And the work continues. It, we're not going to, in this moment, get rid of it, but we can inoculate ourselves from many of the symptoms. I like that metaphor. I think of racism, white supremacy is a virus as well. So I want to talk about, uh, let's say, how do we develop more antibodies? The way in which the natural world functions that in order to develop the antibodies, you still have to be exposed to the virus. So here's the interesting thing. Florida wants to remove our exposure mm. by keeping yeah. us from reading, reading the, the necessary work mm -hmm. yeah. that can develop the vaccine. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that works, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you can't read Toni Morrison, you can't read Maya Angelou, you can't read Zora Neale Hurston, I, I can't read anything about Rosa Parks, you are removing the natural way in which the body politic can inoculate itself from this virus that keeps mutating. And it, and it isn't, I mean, I don't know what metaphors they're working with, but this, it is by design That's right. to extract, remove, buffer, make a prophylactic around little, little white children so that they do not know 
They don't have the capacity for empathy. They do not know, they do not develop the natural antibodies to racial hatred because... See, I'm glad you said that because it. I think that just as a, as a virus functions, uh, that can destroy portions of the immune system or portions of the body. White supremacy is attempting to destroy portions of us spiritually so that we are unable to fight against us and we would think uh, against this and we think it's normative. That's right. Weakening the immune system as opposed to strengthening it, right? And you know, in our little multi-ethnic, multicultural church at Middle, I feel like I'm dangerously close to people like, is she going to talk about that one more time? <laughs> is she going to talk about white supremacy one more time? I feel like you know, Robert Carter is the psychologist that I studied that does racial identity development, right? He says, there are a lot of differences that divide us, but race is a different difference. Mm. It's everything. We're talking about ethnicity, really, not race, but America thinks it's race. But it's everything, right? It's healthcare, it's housing, it's... I'm going to misquote this number, but there's a doctor I follow named Ushe Blackstock. She reported a study that was done that talks about how many more Black deaths we've had in the last 20 years. And it's something like 6 million more deaths than would have been predicted. Mm. More deaths than normal. The nor mm. More deaths than normative. So your dad was talking about fasting and praying the last time we were all together. <laughs> Talk about getting us back to mysticism. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do, Otis? What does Jesus, Yeshua, Ben Joseph, what do our texts tell us? What are we going to do to dance through these turbulent times, to learn how to move in these turbulent times? And to go back to our metaphor, to inoculate ourselves, to grow some antibodies against all the violence and anger. What are you thinking about that? I think that uh, scripture gives us a lot of help mm -hmm. in reference to that. I mean, you know, like Second Chronicles, you know, breaks it down. If my people who are called by yes. my name will right. humble themselves. themselves and, you know, humble, pray, seek my face. Yes. And then here's the, the I love the verb, you got to turn. <laughs> <laughs> turn from, from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven heaven, and I will forgive their sin. And the final portion, I will heal. I will heal the land. So the action, I think, for, for faithful people, this idea of humbling ourselves, and we're in a moment of everybody uh, feels as if not only they're the expert and they know everything oh and they goodness. can broadcast themselves, <laughs> but the lack of humility and civility in society is, is a cacophony of sounds, or in the words of, of, of one writer, uh, signifying nothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so, so I think that that is one of the things that uh, this idea of humility and prayer, and prayer not as simple requests, uh, but prayer as listening and also communicating, which in our modern materialist society, we don't believe. We want trinkets, genies, and little rabbit's foots for our God. Oh my <laughs> you know? goodness, that's true. 
<laughs> we just want God to just just give me the pin number so I can get hooked up. <laughs> so talisman, let me just back. rev you. See what you got. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That, that's all we want. We don't want the work. Spirituality demands work. It's heavy lifting and deep commitment. It's 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 a it's a way in which we have to live. And I think that that, that those people of faith and deep commitment uh, are required to that, and and then required to to be disturbed by the scripture that that we lift up and read. Uh, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God, you know. Um, you know, I wonder if some evangelicals have ever read that, you know, certain ones, I should say. And looking at the, the, the idea of Jesus spending a, this Palestinian Jew, uh, we had a group of young people who um, came and they sang at our church called, uh, singing this song called God of Color. And they were talking about the decolorization of Jesus in the song. And uh, talking about the, the fact that re recommitting and connecting to this Jewish rabbi uh, operating in Palestine, how that changes everything instead of viewing Jesus as if he was a Christian. <laughs> which is just so what he's not. <laughs> yeah, which freaks out some, you know, certain know. people. What do you mean? Right. No, he wasn't. He was Jewish. He was let's, Jewish. Let's, let's, let's roll with this. You know, he was he was Jewish. I love that Chronicles, the Second Chronicles text. I love the sort of clear map, if you then, right? Mm. Which I also find to be very powerful in Isaiah 58, that kind of fast that God desires. Mm. Um, yes. Our, our brother Barber kind of repairs the breach thing, sort of like, if you, you know, if you share your food with the hungry, if you um, provide the poor with shelter, when you see the naked, if you clothe them, if you don't turn away from your own kin, which, by the way, is all of us, then your light right, will shine forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. I'm, I'm fascinated that those texts both have kind of a sense of contracting that ends in healing, that ends in reparations, Ooh, which I'll tell you about that some, some more another time, how this amazing reparations conference I was just at. But you know, spirituality is a heavy lift. Our light shines in the darkness. Our night becomes like the noonday because we stop oppressing each other, because we stop being malicious toward each other, but because we decide that God loves all the bodies and we treat people like, like they're children of God. Otis, I wish I understood this. I don't. I'm just going to say it out loud because maybe you can help me. I do not understand the obsession some Christians have about other people's children trying to be who they're trying to be. Mm -hmm. Shut up. Like, I don't understand. It is similar to what we have witnessed all through history when there is a shift for people or, you know, what they consider to be a cultural norm uh, for, for people. And, you know, libertarians stopped being libertarians at that moment. You know, you know, small government Republicans stopped being small government, government. <laughs> at that moment because it it rocks and disturbs what has been normative. But it's really the fact that I would put it this way, that it's a it's a language issue. And when the reason I say it's a language issue is because if 
you've been speaking something for so long, and then someone comes along with new language, it's completely disorienting for you. And, and that happened to so many people uh, throughout the years uh, in terms of the way in which they communicated about women, the way that they would communicate about black people, the way that, I mean, the way that we communicate with people who are same gender loving, the communication changed. And then all of a sudden you, you have two things you can do. You can be ignorant and arrogant and just say, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Or you can raise questions about, okay, why did I use the language that I use? Why do I say, why do I believe what I believe. And you can do some reassessment. And I think that that's what we're in. And we're in a space where you have people who are giving other people permission not to have self-reflection. Yeah. And that's a problem. That's, that's a, a problem. real problem. Yeah. That's weird. And you know, when I put my psych hat on, I say turbulent times want us to find a thing to cling to, a thing a boundary, a border. We become more tribal. We want to connect with our own kind. We're looking for anchors. We need something not to feel transient or iffy. And so the kind of fundamentalist response to today is these are these are our core stories and these are our core values and these mm-hmm. are the family values and this mm-hmm. is the... So I understand, but it's dangerous when it's happening without a critical self-reflection. And woe to the clergy, whoever y'all are, whoever hear this, who don't want to raise a kind of theological curiosity in your own in your people. So they feel like they're theologians and residents in their own lives too. What, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for the world? What, you know, what does God, what's God got to do with this? What's love got to do with this? Mm-hmm. It's chaotic right now. And you talk about consecrating chaos. Want to say something about that? You know, chaos is a part of of living. It's a part. It's a part of life. You 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 can't get away from it. The power of consecrating is knowing that there are certain principles in the midst of chaos that you can harness. Every sailor understands. I don't control the water, and I don't control the wind, but. I can build a ship that can catch the wind and be balanced on the water because I understand the basic physics of how it functions. And what sailors understand, I'm always just fascinated. There's a spirituality, I believe, in in sailing. I don't sail, but you know, just talking to people who sail. In the fact that they say, I can never sail in a straight line um, because I've got to catch the wind and sometimes I have to tack left and tack right. It's not just going directly where you want to go. It's knowing where you want to end up, but you got to know how to move your sail appropriately to catch the wind during your journey. So the, the sailors tell you the journey is as much as, is, is just as important as your destination. Having your balance, and here's the other thing that I found out about sailing as I was, I did a sermon some years ago on it, um, is I'm just fascinated by boats and whatnot. The number one reason that boats wreck early on, these, these, these major large boats they used to build in the in 15, 1600s and 1700s or whatnot, major reason that they would uh, wreck had nothing to do with the weather. 
had everything to do with the crew. They said, if, you're, if you've got an inexperienced crew rolling with you, the likelihood that you're going to wreck <laughs> is very high. Um, and so in the midst of chaos, to consecrate, it's also very important who's your crew to get you through your chaos. You, you can't roll with everybody on your ship. When the storm hits, you got to have the right people rolling with you who can say, baby, I've been through this before. You're going to be all right. And even if the ship does go down, there's a life preserver over there. Put it on. Yeah. Very good. That's right. That's good. And it makes me think, just to kind of get back to uh, to the power of stories, Otis. You know, you're a consummate storyteller. But our storied book, our, the scripture, has maps for us. Because it has testimony, because it has, because, right? Because it has story. We've been here. We've done that. We wrestled this way. We, this is what we've learned in relationship to the holy that we've passed down to you, your sermons, your book, midrash, I'd say, on the, on these texts, right? So, what's something that you tack to, in scripture, that keeps you moving toward? I don't know, the promised land or, yeah. In John, when uh, the statement is, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Mm-hmm. And I love when, when Jesus quotes Old Testament stuff. For yeah. example, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your, your spirit. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all of scripture is going to hang on this. You know, I'm not going to introduce anything new to you. I'm just going to keep giving you the ancient stuff. That's right. You can get that thing right. Get it together. So the way in which you build out your theology, don't start with Paul. Start right here. And then you'll understand Paul better. You'll be able to understand the Old Testament, the Torah, better. Begin right here. Can you love God? And with all your heart, with every emotion that you have, uh, with your mind, that means with an intellect, an intellectual commitment and love. With your spirit, that means your entire being. With your body, which means that your, your body in itself is is a prayer in terms of how you use it. And then love your neighbor. But it, you know, it's just just like it's the prerequisite to this. Love your neighbor before you can love your neighbor as yourself. So if you're devoid of self-love, if you can't stand yourself, if you hate who you are, then you are incapable of loving your neighbor. And maybe that's the most insidious thing about white supremacy because it tries to say that we have high regard for ourselves, but in reality, we really don't love ourselves enough to be able to love our neighbor. Did you read my book? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's fierce love right that's there. That's fierce love right there. No, it's, it's true, right? I mean, I think at the bottom of all this hatred and violence is a, just like holes in the souls of the people mm, who absolutely. create the world this way. You know, it's not a world created for love and flourishing. It's created off, out of scarcity and out of want. 
and neediness, quite honestly, right? I love that, though. Those are, those are my favorites. That's why we like each other. Love God with everything. Love neighbor as yourself. Love, period. Yep. It's pretty basic. You just kind of build out from, from there. It, it, it is. It's very difficult. The most difficult thing that humanity will ever engage is the idea of love. That there's, there are more books. There are more poems. There are more songs. They're written about. It's, love is the number one thing that is written about in, in human history because we have yet to fully grasp it. It's, it's a difficult task. It's a very difficult task. The kind of love that we're, you know, we're, we're speaking of in, the, in this level, it's, 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 it's just hard. It's just hard. It is difficult to love each other uh, and to love ourselves in the container that is an unloving container. But that is our work, y'all, <laughs> in our community, our sons and our daughters, our fathers and our grandfathers, our village of deacons who teach us how to be a man, all of that to teach us how to love ourselves so we can love the God who's inside us well as well. I could talk to you for like six more hours, but probably I shouldn't. <laughs> but It's always a joy to talk with you, Storm. It's always a joy. Oh, my Storm is up here watching us. Somewhere. Oh, you got your picture? Okay. Yeah. Do you still have yours? Yeah, I have it in my office at church. It's your office at church. Y'all, Otis is my bishop and I am his Storm. And that belongs <laughs> to the X-verse. So look us up. Uh, can you give us a blessing as we leave? Certainly, certainly. It would be my my joy. May the peace of God rest upon you. And may no destructive forces in, enter into your domicile. May a hedge of protection be placed around your home. And may in the peripheral vision of your spirit, may you witness the holy mischief of our God. And may you hear the laughter of children and hear it as a message and a song coming from the sacred. And may you feel the hugs of elders and experience them as an encounter with an angel. And may you see the hard work simply as a challenge for this moment to build a better space for the next generation. May you learn to love, may you learn to laugh, and may you hold wonder in your heart. We give thanks and give praise unto God on this day at this time. And may we open our hearts up to the message and to the mischief acts that come from holding the prophets and the Savior known as Jesus deep in our heart. And we offer this at this moment with a simple word of amen. 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 I love my conversations with Otis. They are always rich and deep, like we're sitting on a porch, rocking and drinking lemonade. And especially when we talk about his father and his son, I hear a legacy of deep spirituality grounded in scripture, grounded in light. I'm reminded that we are light in the darkness and that our love, our love of ourselves, our love of our God, and our love for one another actually will sustain us 
with light in these turbulent times. 